So as I mentioned, we are uh, in Titus. Uh, we are in Titus uh, three once again this morning, and we are looking at verses three through eleven. We looked at uh, uh, three through seven last week in um, in the way that the gospel affects our relationships. Uh, with those outside of uh, the body of Christ and really in a lot of ways those that are maybe hard to love, maybe um, that we're in ongoing conversations with that it's easy to uh, respond in a way that, that uh, doesn't honor who we are in Christ, doesn't, doesn't honor our relationship with the Lord. Today we're looking at how the gospel uh, sheds light on religion and religious conversations or maybe what someone would think elevates themselves or, or would seek to elevate themselves with, with religious ideas, if you will. But let's start um, with verse 3 here, where we read, uh, de- stepping right back into Paul's recitation of gospel truth as the basis of this chapter, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies. Sorry here. And well, I'm having trouble with this thing. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they un- are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now this is interesting. I'm seeing different You want me to just motion to you? Number seven, how about? Thanks, guys. This is where, as a youth pastor, I would say, do not look behind the green curtain. (laughs) The main idea that we're getting across, just like last week, is this. A A gospel relationship with God should lead us to live on gospel mission in our relationships with humility 
and grace and hope. Living with humility and grace and hope. That's, that's what a gospel relationship with God should do in our lives as we live on gospel mission. And the central statement as we looked at last week that's kind of central to this chapter we find in verse 8 where he says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He's saying, he's saying live by these things so that you can be about what I'm about, what Christ is about, what God is about, and it's not religion. Okay, you know, um, one of my irritations in helping coach fourth and fifth grade uh, football is kids that want to come back to the huddle, pull their mouth guard out, and start talking. And uh, even this past Sunday, I, I, I knew which kid I was going to have to come on, down on, and I was just like, stick your mouth guard back in and be quiet and listen. Because a lot of important things get spoken, but they can only be spoken by one person, and that's the coach. You know, and, and my hope would be that if the, if the coach communicates something and he says, okay, don't forget that, what I just said, remember it that for that kid that took his mouth guard out and starts jabbering to the kid next to him, that hearing the coach say, remember what I just said, he might stop and say, what was that again? I, I missed that. And see, that's what Paul is saying in verse 8 when he said, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. And the these things, he's saying here, what I just said is so important so that you don't get caught up in religion, but that you can move on to living out of what I just said. And what he just said is the gospel we find in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And that's the basis of our gospel mission we see there, and that's God's grace. God's grace is the basis of our gospel mission. And it starts with verse 3, that we ourselves, we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray, we were enslaved to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hated hating one another. We talked last week about this should shed light and grace on our relationships with other people of humility. We should be able to look at those who maybe don't have a relationship with the Lord and to be able to say, you know what? That's either how I was or that's where I was going before God's grace stopped me. We should be able to look at those that are enslaved in this life and realize this is just the normal pattern of sin. To just ignore that proverbial wisdom which, which comes from 
living in the fear of the Lord, realizing that he, he owns everything. It's all about him. It all belongs to him. And that leads us to a place of being easily led astray by others. Or, or, or it leads us into disobedience, and that is ignoring what God has outright said. Be about this. Don't be about this. And that leads us to a place of easily being led astray by others down a path that we were never intended to walk and that brings us to a place of being enslaved unable to get away from seeing everyone and everything being centered around getting us that one thing that we are enslaved to that's the normal pattern and and understanding that that's where we all end up walking separated from Christ should allow us to look at someone that's enslaved to whatever it is and realize that's where I would be. This week, we're looking at how the gospel should affect our approach to religion and teaching of of others and being able to, to evaluate that and evaluate what we teach. And the bad news of the gospel is kind of like um, if you thought of like if I'm just kind of up here and I'm just covered in dirt and dirty and filthy and, and you know, from, from uh, head to fingertip and toes. And, and for, for the opportunity to live in a relationship with God means that I've got to get clean and I've got this perfectly white suit sitting here, right? And I'm like, I can clean myself up, no problem. I, I'll, I'll put that suit on, okay? Now, where I am represents the sin I've committed and the things that I've done and the, and, and the, the things I think and say just in my sinful condition. But, but you know what's going to happen when I go over here to put this white suit on. I might get it all on. I might button it all up and everything, and I'll be like, here I am. And you look at it, and every button and every seam and every spot that I have touched with my dirty hands has soiled it. And that's what it's like for the person that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, doesn't stand in His righteousness. That's what it's like for them because... even their righteous deeds are tainted. Even our righteous deeds are tainted by our sinful hearts and the sin which indwells us. That's what Isaiah is speaking about in Isaiah 64, 6, where he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Can you move us to slide 10? Well, there you go. And this is why the good news of the gospel starts with the bad news of our sinful condition. That we, it has to be that that huge contrasting statement of but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me ask you something. If you know Christ as your Savior, what motivated God to save you? What, what motivated him to pour his grace and righteousness, his grace and mercy on you? I, I've heard the statement said, if I were the only person on the earth, Jesus still would have died for me. And I believe that is true in the sense that it was it suited God's purposes to save us by his grace and his mercy poured out on Christ. It's not that I am so special that Jesus still would have died for me. It's not that God just couldn't bear to let one of his, you know, apexes of his creation die in sin. We see in our passage today that it is his, because of his goodness, his loving kindness, not by works done by us, but according to his own mercy. And notice that Paul is speaking of himself as well, not by works done by us in righteousness. He saved us. You know, Paul who living in a culture of self-righteousness and excelling in that self-righteousness, excelling in those good works, Paul is saying, this is who we were and this is what he did by his goodness, by his loving kindness, by his mercy. If you ever doubt these characteristics of God, his love, his goodness, his kindness toward you, know that it is the very thing that your relationship with him is based on. And the very presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, if he is present and indwelling you, it is because of God's goodness and his kindness and his love. And notice the description of, of walking in a relationship with God. It's that so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Just as much as eternal life is our hope, we are heirs of that. To be justified means to be, to be looked at and seen as righteous, to be declared as righteous by the perfect, just judge of the universe. It, it's kind of like that condition of even every white suit I put on and I try to c clean myself up with still is just tainted by my hands, by my sin that Paul paints the picture of here of us as we talked about last week of being washed and then clothed with Christ. That it's not an action that I did here to make myself 
saved, I respond to the goodness of who God is. Like, like what Second uh, Corinthians 4, 6 says, when the, light, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into my heart so that I might see the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And how, what can I do but respond and say, yes, give me that. But the action is that he clothes us in Christ's righteousness, and this is why we call it, and this is why Scripture calls it being in Christ. That I have Christ's full acceptance before the Father. I have Christ's full righteousness before the Father. I have Christ's full position before the Father. And that nothing can take that away from me because I did nothing to earn it in the first place. God doesn't expect me to put us to put on our own righteousness. He put Christ's righteousness on us. And all we are left to do with this offered to us is to say, yes, Lord, that is me in total need and unable to put on any righteous deed that is going to make up for this dirtiness that I carry in who I am as a sinner. But I need the righteousness of Christ that he made possible for me in his death and his resurrection. And I want to stand before you as righteous as Christ is. Please give me that. And when we face trials or temptations, we must allow ourselves to be drawn back to what the gospel says about who we are in Christ's righteousness. We didn't get here by our own good looks, and we're not going to lose it because of our ugliness. And if God didn't love us unconditionally, why would he save us in the first place? As we have the ever-gracious, ever-powerful creator of the universe in our corner. As Roman 8 asks us, how could God ever turn his love away from us? How could he ever condemn us? The judge is on our side. The prosecutor is the one who died for us. And he goes on to say, we are more than conquerors because of Christ Jesus but the fact is, is that we live in a very self-centered and self-promoting age where anything that could offer us the opportunity, but yeah, yeah, but you could be the hero. You could be the, the one that's exalted. You know, I read recently a, a funny description of a person who said, I decided I'm going to make friends the way that I do on Facebook. They said, so what I did was I decided to stop perfect strangers on the street and said, hey, let me tell you what I'm feeling at this very moment. And let me, let me, let me, let me word it in just the way that I think that will sound witty enough, and then I'll, I'll give it to you. And they said, let me, in fact, let me let you know what I ate for dinner last night and what I did afterward and what I plan to do today. 
you know, which will involve this girl or this guy or this folks. You know, and let me pull out some pictures and say, this is me on vacation, this is me with my kids, this is me tinkering around in the garage. And show me your pictures. And I'll give you a thumbs up. And I'll say, I like that. You know. And as they're walking away, I like to, just so that they know I didn't forget them, I like to walk up behind them and poke them. You know. <laughs> give them a thumbs up. And the person, you know, comically says, and it, it works perfectly. I already have four people following me. <laughs> Two police officers, one private investigator, and one psychiatrist. <laughs> Sadly, this self-elevation can show up in our walk with the Lord also. And Titus is dealing with this in Crete. And the gospel sheds light into how he's to deal with man-centered religion. And he's dealing both with teachers outside of the church, but also their followers within the church that are promoting themselves as teachers. Our world is soaked with man-centered religion. Man-centered religion, you can define it simply as elevating man's role in the universe and bringing God down to where man can either appease God or find a way to rule over him and control him with religion. Okay, That's man-centered religion where God is kind of orbiting around what man might do. Okay, Maybe, oh, man's... Man's, you know, I'm going to stay a little further. Oh, he's looking good. I think I'll, I'll bring in closer. And maybe, maybe he's got something for me. Or, and Oh, no, now he's in control of me, God might say, in man-centered religion. It pops up in a lot of unexpected places. I was, sh- I was talking with a friend who, who went for some corporate training recently. I was just kind of talking about, well, so how did it go in things and what was it like? And they responded with the fact that, you know, it got a little weird because it kind of got started getting into this, hey, you know, you just need to, your answer is that you need to visualize your success. The, and, and really, I kind of started asking some questions, kind of diving in, and it turned out it was, it was kind of all about, you know, you have the answer deep within you. And you need to find whatever tool you need to do, either some sort of centering or some sort of concentration to bring out that success from within you. And I shared the fact that, you know, I have to interact with my kids' toys and entertainment redemptively, and we find the very same things. Okay, for instance, you know, my kids... Whether it be the Jedi, you know, who by his training, he, he develops this inner ability to control the world around him. Or, and I'm not saying these are bad things. These are opportunities to, re, to interact with it redemptively. My kids uh, were watching a show called Avatar. And um, uh, a movie came out about it called The Last Airbender. And, uh, you know, there's this people group over here that they control Earth. You know, they control dirt and ground. These people over here that develop the ability to control wind. And these people over here that develop the ability to control water and ice and things like that. And I just asked them, I was like, okay, this is interesting. Now let's look at Ninjago. 
okay, which is a toy that, and TV programming things that kids watch. Okay, this one has the ability to control fire, which is also an avatar one. This one has the ability to control water and ice. This one has the ability to control air. This one has the ability to control dirt. Let's look at bionicles. Master of water, master of fire, master of air. But it's the opportunity here to help them to see and for us to remember man-centered religion always has to do with I'm going to find within myself the ability to control the world around me and I will be self-sufficient. I will be able. I will define what is right, what is wrong. I will rise to a place where I don't have to rely on anything I am capable. I am in control. And, and it's as simple, redem- interacting with that with redemptively is as simple as starting back at the Garden of Eden and saying, that sounds a lot like the lie that was sown originally. You can be like God. Knowing good and evil. You can decide what's right. You can decide what's wrong. You can be in control. Just a side note, the girl version of it is every Disney princess song, okay? (laughs) It's about me now. I'm going to live, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to not listen to this, you know. And it ends up with some authority figure in their life saying, oh, I'm so glad you didn't listen to me and you, dis- you did what you do would be best. Okay, I'm not saying those things are wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying that they are soaked with man-centered religion in the reality. So man-centered religion elevates man's roles in being able to control God. It can be as blatant as incantations or power words, or even as far as Satanism, which is worshiping the enemy of the creator. Or it can be subtle. It can be the little old lady that I saw at the shrine of of, uh, Guadalupe climbing the steps on her knees, saying a prayer one step at a time because that's what the priest told her to do. It can be learning a special prayer that God always responds positively to. It can be delving into the deeper meaning behind Bible words. Well, see, this word has this number of letters, and that number represents this. And see the deeper meaning that's there, and only you know it. What's truly sad is when man-centered... Religion makes its way into the church, and we see this in Crete, and we'll just kind of fly through these examples here. This is why Paul tells Titus, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, these worthless debates. There were those that that deviated from the gospel because They were elevating themselves because they had figured out the alphabetical relationship between words in the law and in the Psalms and things. There were those that that found uh, differences in genealogies and and they wanted to promote themselves. I'm I'm the uh, I'm the you know pinnacle of genealogical teaching, 
and things. And from Paul's warning to Timothy, we know that this was true among some of the teachers. We see in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7, he tells them, uh, as I urged you when going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship of God that is by faith. In other words, the stewardship that was given to you, Timothy, the gospel to teach that comes by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul goes on in verse 4, 7 of 1 Timothy to tell him the teacher needs to keep his focus on the main things, and that is, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. We know that the beginning of godliness is loving God and loving others. And what can happen so often is when somebody puffs themselves up with knowledge because they have a mindset of, you know, this is making me more important, this is making me more elevated, what loses out is their godliness and their love for others. As we know about in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, where the debate there is, should we eat meat, should we not eat meat? And Paul says, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge that these folks are teaching from puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, go back to the gospel. If we're disagreeing on any given issue, we have to ask, does it have to do with the gospel or the gospel mission that we have been given? And I think we do pretty well, to be honest with you. I'm not patting us on the back or anything like that, but but I run this through here. As Augustine put it, in the essentials, we must have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. You know, here we we describe the essentials as this is what's on our statement of faith. This is what we need to be unified in. In the non-essentials, if it's not in our statement of faith, uh, we're not going to fight about it. But in all things, if we aren't loving, then we're overly concerned about the wrong things. We saw here, see here in uh, verse 10, that there's woeful division in the church in Crete. Where he says, as for a person who stirs up division, the term here for division is, is a term hereticos, which the, also the term heretical comes from. It means, this, this division her, or hereticos means to take, to take for oneself, to choose, to prefer. In other words, to take a path for yourself and to take a group of people along with you. 
person becomes the authority on what is true. They become their own authority for what they should believe, and they become the authority on who's in and who's out of their group. Again, Paul dealt with this sort of thing in Corinth, where some claim to follow him, some claim to follow Apollos, another teacher. And he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, he says, What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned each to teach. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. For he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And then I love this in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The bottom line is that this, is that when there's any diversion in the church, division in a church, all parties must be very aware that it is God's church. It's not a teacher's church. It's not a family's church. It's, it's, not, you know, it's not even a town's church. It's God's church, God's field, God's building. And Paul also um, guides Titus in wise discipline where he talks about after warning this man or this person or, or whoever it is that's uh, involved in these foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. As I mentioned, Paul was dealing with false teachers outside of the church but as well as their followers inside the church. In Titus's day, there were Gnostic teachers, and, and there were also those who taught that Christians must follow the Mosaic law prior to being able to be Christians. And these Titus was told to not associate with. In our day, we should be ready to, to spot the same sort of man-centered religion, elevating man, Say, well, you've got to reach this level before God can do anything for you. Or if you reach this level, then you can tell God what to do. Or you can have the corner on the market of what truth is. Those that teach maybe that they've heard from God in our day and age, which interestingly makes them the authority on what is truth and what is not truth. Or those that teach there is no authority. Not even the Bible. You know, that, that we just got to get rid of these ancient regulations, these ancient restrictions. But interestingly, again, they're saying, and I'll let you know which ones you need to listen to and which ones you don't. Notice who becomes the authority again. Remove the authority of the scriptures and the authority of the teacher becomes elevated. As I mentioned, Titus was also dealing with those inside the church there were likely those that were teaching error just as we read about, about in Ephesus from 1 Timothy. And um, in that situation, Galatians 6 should be followed. Matthew 18 should be followed. And I'll just, I'll just read over that. It has to do with both when we, when we find a brother or sister in, entrenched in sin in that process of being foolish, being disobedient, being led astray, being enslaved, to passions and pleasures. 
So Matthew 18, Christ tells us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, it's funny, we're usually interested in the further part of that process. What really needs to be listened to is go and talk to him between you and him alone. You know, not talk to this person and this person and this person and this person and this person. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Steps here are go to the person, go to the person with another believer, go to the church leadership to say, I- I'm, I'm handing this situation over for you to address with this person. And then they go to the person in the hopes that they'll be corrected in this process of church correction. But if it doesn't bring correction, then it's considered discipline. The reality, though, it's helping the person to see the state that they're in. To say, if you're not responding to conviction, we're concerned that the Holy Spirit might not be present within you then it's time to preach the gospel. But those involved should be guarded against gossip and slander. Again, it's easy to become the authority over the situation ourselves rather than following Scripture's direction and allowing leadership to minister. I was talking with um, uh, another friend who, who refed um, kids' basketball games. And he's just, we were kind of talking about how, you know, parents can be a challenge in the stands and things. And he, and he finally told me one of the times he just kind of walked up to a parent, took the, took the whistle off and just said, do you want to do it? Really, do, do you want to ref the game? And it's like, no, you're, you know, I'll be quiet, you're fine. Much like this person filling the role and responsibility of referee, you and I should be in a place that we are, we, we should understand that we are in the place that we are if we know Christ as our Savior. We're in that place due to God's grace and calling. And leadership understands that they are in that place due to God's grace and calling. I love being a pastor. Right now, I, c- I could not imagine myself doing anything else. The reality is, though, if God had not called me to being a pastor, I would never choose to be a pastor. It's a challenging place to be. It really is. It's a challenging ministry to have, and and you guys are easy. But it's also because I, I would never do this if it weren't for the fact that I know that God will work, and God does work through it. And I would never do it without that calling to do it. And with that comes the responsibility to, to sometimes confront, to sometimes, to, with, for myself and for leadership, to, to watch over the flock because, just as it was the case in Crete, it can slide into man-centered religion so easily. 
so easily. And I hope that you see this morning the fact that how understanding our gospel relationship with the Lord is the way that we understand religion. Because everything outside of our gospel relationship with the Lord is just man-centered religion where we are elevated a little bit more and God's brought down a little bit so that we can deal with him on our own. But that's not the relationship that we've been given with him. We have been showered with his grace based on his goodness, his loving kindness, and his mercy. And that grace, if you will, has, has filled our lives like an ocean and floated us up to be in his presence, clothed in his righteousness, clothed in Christ. And we have all that we need in that. And if we're called to teach, if we're called to share his truth with others, it's not an opportunity to elevate ourselves. It's not an opportunity to dig down into something that nobody else has discovered and make something of ourselves. It's just an opportunity to share that very grace with others that we all desperately need. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are grateful for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, um, uh, in some ways there can be a danger to moving along in years in our relationship with you because in some ways it, it can be a danger of digging deep for something that, that uh, isn't there maybe. Lord, I thank you for uh, the presence of humility here that understands that we're nothing without you. I thank you, Lord, for the understanding that we have everything if we have you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us with your Holy Spirit and on the authority of your word. I pray, Lord, that, that our people would be daily in your truth. And Lord, it would just be an outgrowth of your gracious relationship that you've given to us in Christ. We'd grow more closely to you. We'd be growing our ability to, to lead other people into that grace and through that grace. Lord, I thank you that you've given us enough in who Christ is and in your awesome righteousness to fill our days. Um, until we see you face to face. And I pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name.